Welcome back to After the Idea, a podcast by Chicago Ideas. I'm Vanessa, your host. If you're new to After the Idea, we're really happy you've joined us as always. Chicago Ideas is the ideas platform for everyone. And After the Idea is a podcast to elevate the ideas, the initiatives, and the impact of change makers and solution makers in the city of Chicago and everywhere. You can learn more about everything we have to offer, from events to content and more, at chicagoideas.com. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Zaire Saul. After serving as the president of the Syrian American Medical Society, Saul founded MedGlobal, an NGO based in Chicago. MedGlobal was founded in October of 2017 in order to address the medical needs created by mounting humanitarian crises around the globe. Welcome, Dr. Saul. I can't wait to get into your story. Thank you for having me, Vanessa. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm really honored that you're here today. So before we get into exactly what MedGlobal is, the work that you're doing around the world, tell me a little bit more about you. What's your background? What's your story? What brought you to Chicago? Yeah. Sure. I am a pulmonary and critical care specialist. So this is my daytime job. I'm a physician specialized in breathing medicine, lung diseases, and intensive care unit medicine, adult medicine. I practice in several hospitals in the Chicago area, including Christ Advocate Medical Center, St. Anthony's Hospital, and Little Company of Mary. I came to Chicago in 1989, finished my medical school from Damascus University uh, College of Medicine. And uh, so I was born and raised in Syria in a city called Homs. Actually, Homs is the windy city in Syria. Oh, how funny. That's great. (laughs) So that's a fun fact. So uh, for the real wind. uh, So I discovered after I came in Chicago that also Chicago is the windy city for the political wind. Yes. And a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people think because we get that lake breeze, that's where the windy city comes from. Uh, It's it's also very windy, of course. It works. It works both ways. (laughs) So I'm married. I have three children. I live in the southwest uh, suburbs of Chicago. And, you know, since uh, I came to Chicago, I got involved in uh, different communities. And, you know, traditionally, if you're an immigrant, you get to know your own community. So I'm quite involved in the Syrian mm-hmm. American community in Chicago and the Muslim community. Uh, I was uh, part of uh, several uh, mosques uh, in Chicago. Then I became the chairman of the Council of Islamic Organizations of Greater Chicago, wow. which is a federation of 60 plus uh, Muslim organizations, including schools, social service organizations, mosques, and so forth. And we built a lot of uh, interfaith dialogue at that time with our neighbors in the Jewish and Christian and other faith communities. Mm-hmm. And we stressed at that time on civic engagement. Uh, that was a you know, very um, sensitive time because it was post 9-11, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of Islamophobia and uh, backlash at, at the Muslim community. And we thought at that time that the best solution would be to open up, to build bridges with our neighbors, and, and so forth. Got it. So before we jump fully into hearing more about Med Global, which is how I was introduced to your work, what came first? Like, tell me more about sort of getting into the medical field, you know, your upbringing in Syria, and then what brought you to exploring sort of the medical industry, and then how that sort of led you to the work that you've been called to today. Well, in Syria, if you're a child and you ask children, what would you like uh, to be in the future? Here in Chicago, they will tell you the boys firefighters and the, <laughs> right. and the girls will be nurses. In Syria, they will tell you doctors and doctors and doctors. Doctor. Everyone wants to be a doctor. And uh, I was good in school, actually was the, the best in my high school, the f- first in uh, all high school graduates in Syria. And that was kind of uh, uh, common sense mm-hmm. and the uh, pathway to medical school. I loved also science and from my childhood. 
And I remember when in one of my birthday and I was in elementary school, my uncle brought me uh, a stethoscope as a gift. So that kind of planted the seed. And then my uh, grandmother died of breast cancer. And uh, I thought that this is something that I'd like to address in my future career. So I went to medical school. Our medical school is six years program after high school and uh, graduated in 88. Uh, one of my classmates uh, is someone who is linked to not very um, humanitarian things. Uh, I know. I mean, <laughs> I, you brought it up, but that was on my list of things to discuss. Tell us about that. Tell us who that classmate is and tell us if there's a relationship at all and, and more about that. So we had large class. When we went to the first year, we had about 800 students mm -hmm. and we graduated about 550. Uh, so the son of the president at that time, the president of Syria at that time was Hafiz al-Assad. His son, Bashar al-Assad, was a classmate of mine. Mm -hmm. So we, of course, um, met several times. Uh, I wasn't close friend to him. And uh, so we had several encounters. But of course, everyone knew that this is the son of the president. You know, it's a big deal. And at that time, he was not being groomed to become the next president. His uh, older brother, Basil, was supposed to. And if our listeners aren't aware, that is the current president, who you're talking about yeah, right now, exactly. is now the current president of Syria. Bashar al-Assad, he wasn't actually a good medical student. So he, cheat <laughs> he cheated his ways <laughs> to graduate. Controversial. <laughs> but he was an average person. He was personable. Mm -hmm. uh, he was humble. He was not perceived as brutal or corrupt as many of the um, uh, people associated with the political system in Syria. No one expected him to be to do what he did yeah. when the Syrian crisis started. We met with him several times uh, after he became a president. Uh, we did the medical conferences Global, in Syria. Did you meet with him? Um, no, with the Syrian American Medical Got Society. It. We did conferences in that summer. And at one point, I asked him whether he was, was planning to introduce political reform. And he had this very long answer. And then he said, well, Syrians are not ready for democracy. And I, I, I was shocked when I heard from him. He, I mean, he was educated as a physician. He went uh, to London to study medicine. So I thought that, you know, his orientation would right. be more consistent with our values here. Uh, but that was very shocking. Then the demonstrations in the Arab Spring started and we know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will let Dr. Salul give the details of MedGlobal, but I learned this morning in my own research that MedGlobal has deployed more than 260 medical volunteers in 70 medical missions to 11 different countries since its inception. Uh, MedGlobal has also donated more than $1 million of medication, medical supplies, and equipment. And that's just what's on your website now. And as a person who works in marketing, I know that those numbers could very well be much larger since you've last updated it. But this right here is already so impressive. And I imagine and a lot of what you've been able to do financially and giving back is a lot about the support, you know, who, who's been supporting your organization and things like that and the hard work of your team. But tell me more about MedGlobal. What called you to this work? How did it come to be? And how has it grown over the years and evolved? Actually, it started uh, out of uh, our work in Syria. And I remember in uh, the summer of 2016, a couple of physicians uh, who are from Chicago also asked me to plan a medical mission to Aleppo. Aleppo was at mm -hmm. that time a city which was the most dangerous city in the world, being bombed every day, hospitals being bombed and so forth. One of the physicians, uh, pediatricians in, in Aleppo uh, was killed in one of these bombing, and he was one of the few uh, pediatricians who were working in Aleppo. So Dr. John Kaler, who is a pediatrician also uh, from Chicago, called me and he said, can I go and help the children yeah. of Aleppo? 
and it took some planning uh, and time to get uh, that happening and then we went in uh, june of 2016 it was very dangerous trip we worked underground because hospitals were bombed uh, me and dr kaler and another physician who's from uh, orthopedic surgeon dr sam Attar. And of course, it was very risky. And uh, we provided services um, to the doctors and the patients in Aleppo. I remember some of these few children that I treated in this underground hospital, which is amazing. This is a hospital that was above ground, like our hospital, yeah. but it was bombed multiple times. So, so they built the hospital in the basement. In the basement, and it was when you enter the space, it's similar to an ICU uh, here in Chicago. You have ventilators. You have um, monitors, you have technology that we're very familiar with, and the patients all underground. And uh, one of the patients, the first patient I took care of him was, uh, his name was Ahmad. He's a child, five years old. Um, he was a victim of barrel bombing. He was in house when a barrel bomb uh, fell on his house. And for, you know, people who do not know what barrel bomb, this is a weapon of mass destruction, was used um, routinely by the Assad regime uh, to bomb places. Uh, so it's a, basically a barrel. Uh, stuffed with TNT and shrapnels wow. is very cheap to to do, and they throw it on these houses by helicopters, and it does destroy one whole block. Uh, so people who are in their houses and they, uh, you know, get targeted, they got crush injuries, they get mutilated, and so forth. So Ahmed was in his house when the barrel bomb fell. So he had spinal cord injury and chest contusion. Uh, when I saw him, he was breathing really hard. Uh, we had to put him on life support. Unfortunately, he did not make it. And there are many other stories right, like this. Right, but that's a story that but, sticks but, out Yeah, for but you. that sticks in my mind. Uh, and when we came back safely, and also leaving Aleppo was another dangerous yeah. trip, uh, because the road le leading to Turkey was under sniper attack and helicopter. It was a miracle that we made it safe. So uh, me and Dr. Kaler uh, said, why don't we do this at the global level? Because it, throughout the Syrian crisis, we kind of developed certain skills. Uh, and unfortunately, civilians in the war time uh, in Syria and other places die just because of simple reasons. Yeah. There is no surgeon in town. There is no antibiotics, there is no IV fluid, uh, there is no uh, blood products. And at the global level, that is also um, intensified. So in Yemen, for example, which is the worst humanitarian crisis in, in our time right now, you have children who are dying of malnutrition, severe malnutrition. 85,000 children in Yemen died because of severe malnutrition. And we're not counting, of course, the people who are dying because of the violence, because of the bombing and the shelling and so forth. So the vision of MedGlobal was created to reduce healthcare disparity at the global level, focusing on areas of disasters and, of course, other low-income countries. And we stress on sending diverse medical team. And this diversity came from Chicago because Chicago is a very diverse city. So we have people from all backgrounds in Chicago. So by design, we send medical teams that has, of course, doctors and nurses mm -hmm. and medics and that have people who are Jews and Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and people of other faiths. I love that you've brought the interfaith work into the medical work. Um, I think every experience that you had in your life position you to do something that is built on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Yes, I mean, this interfaith dialogue that was in my previous life was brought to MedGlobal. It's not a faith of course. organization. Right. It's a secular medical organization. But we have shared values. Yeah. These values are saving lives. And that a child 
in Sierra Leone or a child in India or a child in Pakistan and or a child in Syria has the same right like a child in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, that they should have access to dignified health care that should not be dying just because of simple things that we access. can provide. Yeah, yeah access absolutely. to health And we have that, of course, in our city. I mean, of I course. go to two hospitals. Uh, one of them, uh, St. Anthony's Hospital, which is in the west side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And one of them is in uh, suburbs called Oakland, uh, Christ Advocate Medical Center. If you happen to end up in, in Christ Advocate, you will have access to best technology, best specialists, um, and um, and uh, most likely will spend tons of money to save your life. And if you end up in St. Anthony's, you do, you do not have that same opportunity. And that's mirrored geographic location. Exactly. It's based on the zip code. Yeah. That's something that we think about at Chicago Ideas all the time is how can we make access at any level? Like what you're doing is access to the right to have, you know, dignified medical care. What we're doing is access to the right to be exposed to the ideas that could change your mind, change your world, change the way you see things. And why does our zip code dictate that? Like how can we connect across community lines? And I, I love what you said about MedGlobal not necessarily being a faith-based organization, but when your one core value is saving lives, look at what can happen when we all come together despite the beliefs that happen outside of that that one core value, which I think is really incredible. Oh, definitely. I mean, in the Muslim tradition, there is a very famous verses in the Quran that says saving one life as if you save the whole humanity. And, uh, you know, I take this very seriously as a physician, as a humanitarian. And every colleague of mine in Medi Global, every medical volunteer have this, um, you know, um, kind of the same value, shared value. People ask us, I mean, why Medi Global and what differentiates you from other medical uh, NGOs that are doing uh, good work? In yeah, the absolutely. And they mention, are you another Doctors Without Borders? Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, this is kind of the model uh, mm-hmm. medical NGO. And Doctors Without Borders, ICRC, uh, Save the Children, um, um, IRC, many organizations are doing great work throughout the world. But we wanted to distinguish ourselves by few things. The first one is, as I mentioned, this concept of diversity. Yes. And the second one is partnering with local organization. We do not go there and start things from scratch, but we choose one or two local NGO or hospitals where we try to build their capacity yeah. and we let them set the agenda. We don't impose our own agenda, but they set the agenda based on the priorities and the assessment that they are more familiar with. And also we try to have sustainability in our work by um, incorporating training in Mm -hmm. our missions. So it's not only one shot where you have doctors and nurses doing surgeries and and things like that, but we incorporate training and of course, training and education create a sustainable impact uh, in the future. Absolutely. And we try to be as much as possible culturally sensitive to the population that we serve. So during our orientation to our physicians and nurses, we try to educate them about what to expect in Sierra Leone, what to expect in Colombia if you go and serve Venezuelan refugees? What do you expect in Greece if you're going to be uh, treating um, North African refugees or uh, Afghani refugees and so forth? So being culturally sensitive to understand the community that you're serving is very important. And also we cater to busy physicians and nurses by having short-term medical missions, yep. one or two weeks. That's great. And I think Something that I want to circle back to because you and I have been using, we've been saying NGO, 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 and I I don't want to assume that every listener knows exactly what that means. So explain a little bit, like, what is an NGO? Like, what does that mean as an organization? It's a non-governmental organization. So if we look at the organizations uh, that we encounter, Mm -hmm. so you have governmental organizations, you have the private organization, which is for profit, and then you have the third sector or non-for-profit organization. 
and there is a huge range of entities within this third sector all non-for-profit that mean the purpose of the work is to create an impact to add value to the society Absolutely. but this is not the government and this is not the private sector but this is uh, citizens like me and you who yeah. decide to organize and form uh, an organization and the purpose is to create an impact and add value to the society yeah. And then another point you raised that I want to go back to that I think is really important and I wanted to ask a question is that is the reason why your model is that when you go into spaces, you partner with local NGOs there and local organizations there so that when you leave, your impact is still it's extended. It's not like we go here, we help and then we leave and we're back in sort of a, a crisis. It's like we go here, we help and then we give them the tools to continue to do this work. Is that sort of the mindset that you're in when you go into spaces? Definitely, Vanessa. First of all, we don't leave. Uh, so There you go. Okay. <laughs> Correct me. You don't leave. So uh, when you build these relationships uh, with local organizations and the key uh, influencers in, let's say, Yemen, yeah, and you send doctors and nurses to help them uh, providing certain services in one week or two weeks, but in between, you continue the contact. Uh, so we send them medical supplies, we send them medications. Sometimes they tell us, okay, we have now a campaign to build malnutrition center in this area. Can you help us? So we try to also have similar campaign here and assist them in this. In the future, we're tr- going to try to incorporate uh, something that we've done in Syria, which is telemedicine. Uh, this is a simple tool nowadays with the technology that you can access patients in anywhere in the world if they have certain technology and you have physicians in the U.S. who can be responding to cases uh, that doctors in Yemen and uh, Bangladesh and Iraq and Lebanon encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in- incorporating technology and tele- especially telemedicine would be a very important tool for our future. Incredible. How is your team? And I think that a lot of what we know about the areas in our world that are in a crisis or who need your help. How are you identifying sort of the need? How are you identifying where MedGlobal is needed? What What is the process on your end for that? I mean, that's an excellent question and the most, uh, uh, the hardest question. Hard, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because <laughs> you want to help, you help everyone. You want to help everyone. So we had recently a cyclone in Mozambique and that led to destruction of a major city and death of more than a few thousand people. So some of our uh, board members wanted to help. But we investigated the cyclone and who's doing what. And then uh, we figured out that we would not be able to add value because there are many NGOs over there and our role would be very limited. So the first question you should ask if if there is a crisis that is hitting any places in the world. First of all, is this consistent with our mission? So our mission is to send diverse medical teams to disaster regions and low-income countries to provide dignified health care. So that's the first thing. Second thing, do we have resources to do that? Do we have nurses and doctors who Mm -hmm. can go? And of course, funding for that, uh, funding uh, to support the medication the training, the medical supplies, and the equipment. And the third uh, question, which is the most important thing, uh, would we add values? Such a big question. Would we add value? Uh, When you have a disaster, you have a stampede of NGOs and governments and Mm -hmm. individuals. And I've seen that in Greece, in the peak of the refugee crisis. I went there in 2014 and 2015. And in, in this small island called Lesbos Island, where you had many of the Syrian refugees ending up, and you had stampede of NGOs, uh, more than 300 NGOs came to this small island and individuals from all over the world to provide help to the Syrian refugees who are landing in the um, in the island. Some of them did good work and some of them actually were liability because they wanted to to do something, but they, there was no role for them. Some of them were there for the adrenaline rush. Some of them were there for the social media. Some of them were there just because they want to say that we were there. Uh, so you want to first question, first of all, ask you, yourself, 
are we going to add value? Are we there for the right reason? Yep. And who would be our partner there? And then we decide. So I wanted to ask you about another term that I found on your website and just sort of your definition of what that means. You use a term called smart advocacy. Is that essentially what you just described, ensuring that, you know, when you are advocating for an area or you are sending your teams out to an area that it is adding value? Like what does smart advocacy mean? I think it's such a succinct term, but I would love to have a deeper understanding of how that exists within your ecosystem. Well, well this interview is part yeah. of the <laughs> smart advocacy. But, you know, advocacy is part of NGO work. So yes, you go and you provide direct services to the people you know, shelters, food and medicine and training and other aid. But sometimes uh, if you inform our policymakers, if you inform the public about a situation that they may not be associated with or they may not be inf well informed with, mm -hmm. uh, then that can create more impact. And uh, actually $1 you spend on advocacy sometimes is more important than $100 that you spend on direct medicine or medical supplies. Yeah. So we make an effort that uh, our doctors and volunteers who go to, let's say, take care of the Rohingya refugees, when they come back to speak to their communities, to speak to their hospitals, to meet with policymakers. Right. Um, I met with Senator Durbin multiple times to talk about the Syrian crisis, and he was very responsive. The first time, he did not pay well attention. The second time, I showed him pictures of the victims, including the children that I've, I've treated, and the doctors were targeted, and the hospital that were bombed, and he paid a lot of attention. Actually, he cried. And then he spoke about Syria and the Senate floor. And then he wrote a letter to President Obama. Then he wrote an op-ed about the same issue. Yeah. Uh, so, so advocacy, advocacy is really works. Yeah. And when you are a doctor or a nurse and you go to help people in Yemen and then come back to tell the community, that's what I've witnessed, they will listen to you. This is a voice that we, we don't use, unfortunately, that much. And it's very respected voice. Yeah, that's powerful. One thing I'd love to get your perspective on is the mental health aspect of the work that you do. I imagine in the areas that you visit and your teams go into that individuals, while physically impacted, are mentally impacted by the environment that they're in. Does MedGlobal address that part of the health journey as well? Oh, definitely. I mean, mental health is part of addressing the traumatic population that we, we uh, try to provide services to. So we focus on five clinical areas, women health, children health, non-communicable diseases like heart diseases, hypertension, yeah. uh, and diabetes, infectious conditions that are uh, sometimes very common in war situations like cholera and um, typhoid and all of these things, and mental health. Every refugee and displaced person is traumatized, uh, and there is different levels. So some people have anxiety, some people have depression, some people have PTSD. And this psychological trauma can stay with people. Mm -hmm. um, it will not leave them. And sometimes it manifests itself as what we call a somatization. So people complain to you that I have back pain, I have abdominal pain, I have headache, but actually this is depression that is masked by these symptoms. So if you are a good physician or nurse, you need to understand that this person that you know complaining of these things is actually has depression. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Lebanon. And this refugee came to me, and I'm a lung specialist. She said, I have shortness of breath. Uh, I was diagnosed with asthma, and I'm not getting any help with the inhalers. When I go into the tent, I just want to open the door of the tent. And I try always to leave the tent so I can breathe. I feel that the walls of the tent are suffocating me. So I understood from her facial expression, of course, that this is not typical asthma. So I asked her, do you cry when you're alone? And she said, yes. 
not in front of my children. So the treatment for this case is not inhaler. The treatment is to understand that this is a depressed person and we have to address the issue of her depression. So mental health is something that we focused on. We partner actually with the University of Illinois Global Health Department to create a module of training to community leaders and to doctors, local doctors who are dealing with these cases, and also to incorporate it in the orientation of our doctors before they go and treat uh, these patients. Amazing. I always ask this question on the podcast just because we are Chicago Ideas. And I think that, you know, when I was thinking about how I would pose it to you, I was like, how do I make this make sense for the work that you do? But I think it does. And I think that I always want to understand how the geographic location of an organization, so MedGlobal being based in the Chicagoland area, how does that impact the work you do out in the world, if at all? And do you feel that if you were located in a different city or in a different state, even in the U.S., the work that you do would be different? For example, you mentioned the partnership that you have with the University of Illinois. Like, If you didn't have access to that, would it be different? I just love to hear how the geographic location of where you are, where this organization is started, has impacted what you've been able to do in the world. Uh, I think uh, all of us are the products of our geography uh, and our that's, cities. That's so beautifully put, though. We're all the products of our geography and our cities. Yeah, we are. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, I spend more than half of my adult life or half of my life, actually, in Chicago. So every experience I had, every relationship I had um, impacted me as a person. So when I go to Lebanon or to help a Rohingya refugee or to Syria or to Venezuela, all of these experiences are part of what I provide to the patients I'm serving. So, of course, uh, Chicago is a global city, Absolutely. first of all. And yes, it's it underrated, uh, but it's one It's a of global the, uh, city, a global and you're, city. Not the, you're not the first yeah. person that said that on this podcast, and I think it's so incredible that we feel that as, as residents of the city. And I think having made global in Chicago will raise the profile of our city because this is probably the only organization, medical NGO, that started in Chicago. So I hope that we can take care of it. Yes, I hope <laughs> and, so too. <laughs> and secondly, Chicago is a city of community organizing. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of organizing when you're building an organization. Absolutely. Fundraising, uh, getting people to buy into the idea and the vision, campaigns. All of this I learned from Chicago mm-hmm. as part of my work with the immigrant population. I was um, a board member of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrants and Refugee Rights. We did tons of campaigns I'm to sure. help uh, the, for comprehensive immigration reform. And also... Also in my role in the CIOGC, the Council of Islamic Organization. So this uh, issue of community organizing and, of course, the diversity that we have in Chicago that we try to incorporate in our medical missions and in our uh, mission statement. Yeah, that's and I agree. The diversity of the city is amazing. I think the next step is making sure that we're all working together, Yeah, <laughs> which I know whoa, whoa. is a big part of, <laughs> of what you do. Yeah, and one, one more thing that uh, we tried to have equal, and, and, and that was by design, but uh, we had half of our board members uh, who are women and half who are are men. And I think it's very important nowadays to have uh, this representation of half of our society. Yeah, that's wonderful. So tell us, I want to know what's next and how can we help? If anyone is listening today and they're listening to the work that you've done and the work that you want to do, what's next for MedGlobal? And how could someone jump in today to support your mission, even at the smallest? So for example, myself, I don't have a medical background. What could I do to make sure that MedGlobal continues to be successful and helps people in the world? Well, we set the vision intentionally very high, uh, which is creating a world without healthcare disparity. 
So in order to reach this vision, many people should contribute to our effort. If you're a physician or in the healthcare or a nurse, then of course you can volunteer in our missions. If you like to donate uh, and contribute to our organization because we're a charitable organization, we're 501c3 organization, so we can receive your donations. Our website is www.medglobal.org. And also we have a Facebook and Instagram and all of these things. So you can access information about what we're doing on a daily basis. Spreading the word uh, and uh, having speakers. We have many doctors and nurses, amazing doctors and nurses who went into these medical missions. We just had a cardiac mission to plant uh, pacemakers in Syrian refugees in Lebanon. So this cardiac team came from uh, hospitals in Chicago, from Northwestern, from Rush, from Edwards Hospital. Having them speaking to the community about their experiences is by itself advocacy. a service. Advocacy, <laughs> right. Uh, so having these speakers, amazing speakers to speak because they will inspire the community. We live in the world uh, that is full of crises, unfortunately. And these crises will continue to happen, unfortunately, because of global warming, because of limited resources, because of wars. And we have to highlight the positive contribution of individuals and organizations. And I think uh, uh, talking about uh, the effort of MedGlobal and other similar organizations would be very helpful for our citizens so they can understand that there is always hope. And you can do something as a citizen. Yeah, I think that's true and that's powerful that people just want to know that there is something. I think that a lot of times we can become paralyzed by thinking that if even my small contribution can't help or even my small, just me after this podcast going and mentioning that I spoke with you today could introduce someone to MedGlobal and that may not seem like some huge portion of advocacy, but it could, it really could. This podcast could open someone's mind. So I love that you're giving people a way in to make great impact. Oh, definitely. I believe in the power of networking. I believe in the power of uh, putting our minds together. And if we think differently, then we can create uh, better organizations. So uh, having uh, people from different backgrounds working together, I think by itself is powerful. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here today. All of our listeners out there, I know Dr. Salul shared this, but if you would like to keep in touch with MedGlobal and Dr. Salul, you can learn more about the work that they're doing at medglobal.org. And of course, you can keep in touch with Chicago Ideas and find us at chicagoideas.com. And on social media, we are at Chicago Ideas on Instagram and Chicago Ideas Week on Facebook, and the fun happens on social media, so we will see you there. And beyond MedGlobal's website, where else can our listeners keep in touch with you? I know you mentioned Facebook and Instagram. Are those both just MedGlobal? Yeah, I mean, I have my personal Facebook also. (laughs) (laughs) You want them to come look for you, be friends. Yeah, so I talk about many (laughs) issues like uh, interfaith and so forth. But no, for MedGlobal, we have uh, Facebook. For MedGlobal, we have Instagram. We have Twitter. We have LinkedIn. So many Uh, ways to keep in touch. Yeah, we have YouTube. Uh, I mean, nowadays you have to be present on social media. Absolutely. And it's a way for people to connect. And of course, this podcast is just the way in. So we hope that you will keep up with MedGlobal and that you will learn more about the work that they do. And if it inspires you, you jump in and get involved. And if you love today's episode, please do spread the word so we can inspire even more people with the stories of how some have turned their biggest ideas into action. It's always so great to sit down with people that are right here in our city making such a huge impact both in the city and worldwide. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to After the Idea so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. So thank you again to Dr. Salul and to all of our listeners. This conversation was really eye-opening and inspiring for me and I hope for everyone else. Thank you, Vanessa. And I'm really humbled to be in this program. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Until next time, everyone. Bye.